What's going on, Asymmetry? Back in the house after a very exciting, encouraging, and uplifting trip to Montreal to see the very renowned Montreal Botanical Gardens Bonsai and Pinging Collection. And while there, we had an opportunity to sit down with somebody that I've had a tremendous amount of respect for for a very long time. Somebody I've been honored to work with and for over the course of my career uh, as a bonsai professional. And it was incredible to have David Easterbrook sit down and really walk us through the process by which he and a few select other individuals were able to have the foresight to create the Montreal Botanical Garden Bonsai and Penjing Collection. And in addition to that, how they've created a symbiotic relationship with the Montreal Bonsai Club to really facilitate and foster a community, an approach, and how David himself has had an influence on North American bonsai in such a widespread fashion, all of us have probably been touched by it and we don't even realize it. I was inspired, I was humbled, and I was highly educated by getting to sit down with this man. I appreciate all of his efforts and what he's done, and I'm really excited to share this with you guys. Sit back, enjoy. David Easterbrook, one of the pioneers of North American bonsai and a truly special individual that we all owe a debt of gratitude to. Enjoy. Very formal setting here. I've, I've never been in a smoking room before, but I can feel the vibe. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really interesting. Well, I was saying to Pierre that maybe it'll be different. The people will realize that not all bonsai people are think about bonsai 24 hours a day, that we also have other pastimes and other interests in life. Right. Like African anthropology. Right. African anthropology. And this is what you studied in school? Yes, at university. Yeah. And you continue to maintain or advance your knowledge of it? Uh, not. Not really anthropology. I'm just an African art collector now. Uh -huh. So I just appreciate them for the whole aesthetic, from the aesthetic point of view. Well, when you told me originally what drew you to it, you said something about the cubism or geometry yeah. of it that you really found attractive? It is. Um, you know, the, the very cubistic elements cubistic. in African art um, inspired uh, French Impressionists. Um, Picasso's um, Les, Demo Les Demoiselles d'Avignon um, were, there's, there's two women that have faces that are like African masks. All of the French Impressionists would go to the Musée de l'Homme in Paris and study African art. Hmm. And, and you'd also said that you felt like it was so, African art was so significant to the culture. You found uh, some, some relationship between the art and the culture that you found to be interesting in terms of choosing anthro that anthropological study as a, as a... Well, I've always been a curious person and, and always been um, interested in other cultures, uh, including the Japanese culture. I tell all my students that, you know, if you want to study bonsai, you're going to have to learn to understand Japanese culture mm. because you can't do one without the other. Right. And African art is like that. It's, it's the product of a culture. And so um, you have to study both in order to understand it. Most of the African masks are the result of um, initiation ceremonies or uh, <clears throat> coming of age ceremonies and so what happens is um, you have to understand it's only part of a whole costume and 
and, and the point of each mask. So again, you have to delve into the culture to understand uh, art. And any art um, helps one in bonsai, for example. People will often ask me, who do you think, what nation do you think are the best bonsai artists? And inevitably, I'll say the Italians and the Spanish. Mm. And why? Because they're surrounded by beautiful architecture and sculpture and statuary. Yeah. Every turn, every turn, every time you turn a corner, you see the, this beautiful uh, artwork. And just it develops your eye, helps you to understand proportions, depth of field, um, and and that's what bonsai is all about. It is an art form. Now, did you grow up with art? Like, where did where did this passion for art come from for you? No, I came from a very middle-class family. My father was actually a tennis pro, so a sportsman. Um, my mother was uh, interested in art, but they weren't art collectors. I think it was something innate. Um, I've always enjoyed um, art, going to museums, um, even operas and different things. I, I just, I guess I'm a, just a curious human being. Mm. That's probably how I got into bonsai. Yeah, I mean, how did that start? How did bonsai start? Where did that curiosity begin for you? Well, my mom uh, was probably the initiator. I, I enjoyed, I, I was the one that looked after the family gardens and everything else, but she um, was actually from Western Canada and went to visit her sister in San Jose in California. And her sister brought her around California and she saw a bonsai exhibition at Golden Gate Park and bought me my first bonsai book. I was 19. I was fascinated. I still have the book. And no one, I had never even heard of the word, and no one in Montreal knew what bonsai was. And I thought, wow, this is the greatest thing since mother's milk. And, but there was no way there, I mean, I actually wrote to Japan and ordered bonsai tools, and there was no plant material available, so I would collect trees and fields and gardens. And, and then, you know, to just, become, to understand a bit more, I subscribed to ABS, American Bonsai Society magazines, the ABS Journal, and um, started corresponding with Jerry Stowell. Mm. And he invited me, if I wanted to learn more about bonsai, to go uh, to travel to his house. And um, I actually stayed several on several occasions with Jerry and Warren Cooper. Um, and he became my bonsai, my first bonsai teacher, and really influenced me uh, from that time on. And so this is at the age of 19, and I'm assuming you're then in university, do you call it university in Canada? Yes, yes. Okay, yes. so you're in university studying anthropology at that time, or yes, was anthropology yes. later? Well, uh, after that, I wasn't studying anthropology at first. Um, I had just come back from France. My parents sent me there for a year to improve my French. I lived in Aix-en-Provence. And then I studied English two years um, at Lo Loyola College. Loyola College is part of Concordia University now. And then started studying anthropology. So it was sort of a roundabout way. I even um, stopped my university studies twice to to go and work and actually worked as a um, sales manager 
at uh, Quality Inn and also worked at Grey Rocks as the reservations manager. Uh, Grey Rocks Inn was um, as an inn uh, in northern, well, in the Laurentians in Quebec. Okay. And so when you're talking about collecting these trees out of like fields and there's no material available, I, I mean, um, your original mentor, I'm, I'm assuming he was in, in North, he was in the United States? Yes, Jer Jerry lived in Stockton, New Jersey, oh, okay. not very far from Chase Rosades. We'd gotcha. just cross the bridge onto the other side into uh, Bucks County, visit Chase. So, um, oh boy, I went at least three or four years in a row over to stay with uh, with Jerry and study bonsai with them. Cool. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd drive there or take a train down there. And this is happening in your time frame of life when? When are you going down there to study him? Because at 19, you get this book. <laughs> now you're in my you, 20s. In my 20s. In your 20s. You write and Japan, you get tools, you're digging trees up, and this is all coming together because that's right. yeah. David Easterbrook, as we know, David Easterbrook is, uh, is, a, is a North American bonsai. Le you're a legend. You're a, oh. you're a pioneer. Not quite. Definitely. Definitely. Your imprint on North American bonsai and the impact that you've had over such a broad community of people is gigantic, um, potentially oh, greater you. than anybody conceptualizes. Oh, thank you. And so it's it, to see the uh, accumulation of this passion and curiosity and knowledge at a point where you didn't have immediate access to no, no, no. how to do this. You really pieced together and built your own um, approach or, or found the information and derived it from experimentation, yeah, it sounds yeah. like. And this is basically your 20s. Sounds like a very formidable period of time for your bonsai practice. Yeah. Well, when I was 29, I, I was very friendly with Lynn Perry Allstadt, or Lynn Perry, and she had um, written a book on bonsai trees and shrubs, mm -hmm. the, the teachings that she had learned from Murata. I don't know if you have one of her books in the, your collection. You should. I don't. You don't. I don't, but uh, I am always trying to expand. Okay. Well, um, she she had good connections. She was the one that managed to get some very nice trees for Brooklyn Bot Botanic Garden from Japan in the 50s. And um, she, she helped me a lot in my career. She introduced me to a lot of bonsai people and finally said, David, you have to go to Japan. And I said, well, I don't really have any connections there. So she cleared the way. And I spent almost a year in Japan near Nagoya, okay? And I had studied at Kidoen with Isao Shinkai. They, we called them the Shinkai brothers. There were two of them, and they had a very extensive nursery at the time. In, and so I spent almost 11 months in Japan, and, but it was a very commercial nursery and, you know, most of the time we were just repotting and doing pretty ordinary things. And so finally I decided it was time to come back home because there was no future in bonsai at the time. There was no way of getting a job and uh, I didn't have the money to start a bonsai nursery. In any case, it was unknown in Quebec. So what was the possibility to make you know, make a profession of bonsai at the time. So I came back to, to work and um, basically that's, I was just doing bonsai, growing bonsai for my own pleasure. Finally, it was in 1982 that 
um, we had started the Bonsai Society here in Montreal in 1978. We had literally, at the time, there was a little bonsai store right in front of Concordia University on the second floor, uh, run by a Mr. Riopel. And the people that went to the store, there was a little guest book, and they, could, they would write their names in. And finally, we decided that it would be nice to try to start a society. Took a couple of years. So so in 1978, we started a bonsai society. We had our first meeting at the Montreal Botanical Garden. It was mostly Anglophones, oddly enough, that started um, the bonsai society. And Wait, almost what's, what's an Anglophone? An Anglophone are English-speaking people living in Montreal. Gotcha. Okay. okay. All right. And, <laughs> Or anywhere in Quebec. Right. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, sorry, I guess it's a Quebec expression. Is that a Quebec expression? We just got some slang. An Anglophone. An Anglophone. <laughs> well, you have Francophones also, but... I didn't want to sound uneducated in asking you that, but uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm so happy that I did. An Anglophone. And you're, in, in, at, at this point, you've been doing bonsai for how long? Oh, I had been doing it since uh, about 1970. So it had been, oh boy, about eight, nine years that I had been doing it. Yeah. And so we started a bonsai society. Um, as I said, it was mostly Anglophones. And um, it, it became very popular. The, fortunately, the Botanical Gardens supported us. Pierre Bouc, who was the director, was very, very enthusiastic about it. He made us um, an official partner society of the Montreal Botanical Gardens. Uh, he sent, there was a Korean that was in charge of the orchid collection and also the bonsai, but they were, they only had four bonsai that they had bought from Florida in, uh, in 1976 and they were, they were not very good. Mm -hmm. And so, um, there weren't, weren't that many bonsai at the Botanical Gardens, but Yang would do all these cuttings. The curator, his name was Jai Hung Yang, a Korean, and bring them to our bonsai meetings. So we had a lot of people that would attend them, but mostly only for the free little plants that we would give away <laughs> at every meeting. <laughs> so, so your connection to the Montreal Botanical Gardens started with the formation of a bonsai club. Yeah, well, what happened was in 1980, there was an international flower show in Montreal that was called Les Floralies. And at the time, Pierre Bouc, um, the director of the Botanical Gardens, was very enthusiastic about having bonsai on display. They took over the Olympic Stadium and had it there. And so he actually traveled to Japan and spoke to uh, Saburo Kato and persuaded him to send some bonsai to Montreal. They sent 10 really beautiful specimens and went to China to uh, Shanghai Botanical Garden and persuaded the director of Shanghai high, his name was Wang Dajun, to um, send Penjing to, um, to Montreal. And that, don't forget, at the time, China was communist. Right. And the Americans, uh, they, you hadn't had your ping-pong diplomacy at the time. So it was very controversial. And so they actually sent a little over 200 specimens. There were, yeah, about 10 were very large trees and the rest were all these very small penjing and they were actually they actually sent them because they wanted to sell them to finance their trip uh, because the government was poor they didn't have any money so uh, Pierre Bouc um, finally 
told them that they couldn't, they weren't allowed to sell them because um, they hadn't been properly quarantined and that he would compensate for them. And it actually took years for them to be compensated, I believe. Yeah. But finally he did pay them um, for those trees. And so all of a sudden we had this huge collection of bonsai in Penjing in Montreal. And, and, and Jai Hong Yang was not that experienced. So they wanted to hire summer help to help him. And the first person they hired was uh, Jerry Rainville, who was not, uh, he's uh, growing bonsai now um, in British Columbia. But he and Yang was a very oh, sadistic person, very hard to get along with. And Jerry just, just, it was like fire and water, just couldn't get along with him. So he quit after two weeks. And so I was, I was the um, president of the Montreal Bonsai Society at the time. And so I had to deal with Pierre Bokoff. And so he called me up and proposed the job to me, but just as summer help. And so I actually worked with Yang for two summers. And then what happened was I had an idea, Jerry Stowell had talked to me so much about his visit to Wu Yi Sun. He was a famous pension collector in Hong Kong, a multi-millionaire, billionaire banker, and kept saying how great his collection was. He had seen it with Lynn, Pe no, with Dorothy Young, actually. Uh, and um, they had gone on a trip. And um, he wanted to give some of his pinging to the United States. But at the time, the United States, uh, as a quarantine procedure, would put them in like these iron lungs and, yeah. and send fumigating gas, which would kill all the trees. So Mr. Wu refused to send them to the States. And so I brought a book, one of Mr. Wu's books to Pierre Book and proposed that we write to him. And Pierre Book said, um, we don't even know him. I said, yeah, but nothing ventured, nothing gained. If we don't ask him, if he doesn't know about us, we'll never get any of his trees. And at the time, I believed it was because uh, Mr. Bork's secretary didn't, she wasn't very good at writing English letters. So I made a deal with him. I'll write all the letters to Mr. Wu. You just have to sign them. And so that's what happened. And finally, about a year after starting all this correspondence, Mr. Wu actually said he would, um, he would give us, he sent pictures of 34 trees that he was giving to us. And Pierre Book was ecstatic. And don't forget, I was still just a temporary gardener at the Botanical Gardens. So it took hell and high water to get the city to accept to pay my trip to go with him to Hong Kong to get those trees. And on the plane on the way home, he turned around to me and said, now you got what you wanted. He said, um, are you going to stay around and look after them? And I said, I, I refused. I said to him, I cannot work with Jai Hong Yang. I, he, he's an impossible man. I said, you know how he is. And he said, if I move him to another collection and put you in charge of the bonsai, will you stay? And I said, yes. And I never really had the intention of spending my whole career at the Montreal Botanical Garden because I had already, it's, it's a government job. It was very bureaucratic and I had spent two summers um, 
going through hell and high water with all of the bureaucracy and uh, above me I, there was a gardener in charge, then there was a foreman and above him there was a manager and above that was a superintendent and then there was the assistant director and then the director of the botanical gardens all giving you orders and I mean it, it was insane and I said I'll stay temporarily. And I finished my career there um, because life gets in the way. Um, I met my wife, at the, she's, she was a botanist at the Botanical Gardens and before you knew it we started having children and then we had to buy a house and then there were car payments mm -hmm. and um, I mean I loved my job, I hated the bureaucracy, I hated working for a government agency but I loved what I was doing the whole time. And so how, how old were you when you went to Hong Kong on that trip then? Uh, it was 84 was the first trip. So I would have been 34 years old. And your knowledge of bonsai was created, when did you go to Japan? When were you in Japan for that 11 months? Was that prior to that point? Yeah, in 79. Okay. So you'd gone to Japan, you'd experienced this flourishing or uh, you know, a culture that surrounded bonsai, you were immersed in it for yes. almost a year of your life and, and you came back and, and was that the motivation to dig deeper into bonsai? Did that push you in the direction of maybe pursuing bonsai more seriously or did you view that just as an opportunity to satisfy your curiosity? No, I actually, you know, I mean, what I learned from Jerry Stoll was limited because, you know, I mean, at the time, bonsai in North America, especially Eastern North, North America, was in its infancy. He wrote the book and recommended all the different soil mixtures using turface and using perlite. Uh, and, you know, everyone was just doing bonsai on the fly, really. Yeah. You know, everybody really didn't know how to do it and that's what I found frustrating. I really wanted to see what it was all about. It's like, you know, if you're an, if you're, um, an Arab person and you're a Muslim man, you want to go to Mecca at least once in your life. That's your duty. And I couldn't see doing bonsai in a context where I you know, I didn't go to Mecca and see, you know, how, where bonsai actually came from and how they were actually grown in Japan. Sure. Uh, it seemed nonsensical not to go to Japan and see it. At that time, though, it was expensive and far away. Um, had to borrow money from my parents, but um, you know, they encouraged me and I went. And again, it was just for my personal satisfaction. I never expected to have a full-time job in bonsai. I just wanted to know more about bonsai because I was, I was more than just taken. I was passionate about it even at that time. But not so passionate. Well, there maybe wasn't the, re the reality or the option for that to become a profession at that point. There wasn't. So it wasn't even a thought in your mind and you, you nope. had this, you had the, the, the drive and the motivation and you loved yeah. it, but there was never that option available that's you true. come back, there's a bonsai club, all of a sudden Montreal Botanical Gardens is, is thinking that this bonsai thing might be a great idea. You, you're, you're essentially putting your ear to the grindstone and picking out 
these opportunities. Oh, they can't go to North America because of the fumigation standards for importation. Why can't they come to Canada? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you have a collection at the Montreal Botanical Garden of 200 plus trees. And he's like, all right, David, this is, uh, well, it careful what difficult. you wish for kind of yeah, a thing. That, it was. It was <laughs> awful because not only was bonsai unknown in North America, but the botanical gardens treated them as these fragile little hothouse orchids. Literally, I mean, they, they kept all of the bonsai and penjing collection in greenhouses year round. Wow. Uh, and... I mean, I kept losing trees. They kept dying because the greenhouses were like furnaces in the summer. I mean, we had shade cloth and that, but still, I mean, the temperatures would hit the, in the high 90s. And finally, it was only in 1988, I organized an international bonsai convention in Montreal. I was, had the idea, was the chairman, and we brought in bonsai experts from throughout the world. We brought in John Naka, we brought in uh, Chinese experts. Mr. Wu sent um, uh, Mr. Louis because he couldn't travel by plane. We brought in... Uh, um, Takayama and, and um, oh, what's his name, Nakamura-san mm -hmm. uh, from Japan. So we had Nick Lenz from the United States and they were all here in Montreal for this convention. And um, the superintendent of the garden, he was a, a, a Belgian person, um, called them all together, invited them to breakfast one morning and said, David keeps claiming that um, he needs an outside space, that the trees aren't growing well, that they're dying, not because of him, but because they're... And to a man, they came into his office and said, you have to get them out of the greenhouses. These are not indoor trees. Mm -hmm. And a, a month and a half after the convention, I got my first outdoor growing area at the Montreal Botanical Gardens. Wow. So it, it was difficult trying to change people's mindset about what a bonsai was at the time. Yeah. Even professionals yeah. uh, thought that they were so fragile and if they got the least bit of cold, they would die. It was incredible. Yeah. And how, I mean, how hard was it for you to have all of these trees coming from Japan and China and... Um, knowing what you knew from your experience, both in terms of your own education and your curiosities and then the time that you spent in Japan, but dealing with all of these, all of these different methodologies of the trees that are coming into you to figure out how do I do this in Canada and keep these trees healthy and alive and in fact, hopefully thriving and, ha and adjusting and limited resources. And, like, how did you handle all that? There's not the backbone of resources that we have now back then. How did you do that? To this day, it was so difficult. It was, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd go and find sources for potting material and I'd be out in the blazing sun sifting by hand everything and the bosses didn't understand it at all. We didn't have access to bonsai pots and we had no budget so we couldn't buy them. Um, fortunately, um, there was a little um, 
a, a Japanese lady that would import uh, Japanese ceramics and I got her to bring in some some pots uh, to the garden actually uh, they didn't want to spend money so I'd actually buy them and and pot the garden's trees in those pots and uh, it was just difficult trying to educate all my bosses, mes patrons as they say in French, about what bonsai were and what they needed. Um, you know, I even in the winter they were trying to keep the greenhouses too warm because they decided that the bonsai collection fell under the uh, jurisdiction of the greenhouses. There's two sections at the botanical gardens. There's the outdoor gardens and the indoor gardens. And because they had to be protected during the winter, I had to work for the indoor section. So it wasn't only, you know, having to care for the bonsai, but they didn't think that bonsai needed much work, that I was doing anything in winter. And because I had, um, I didn't have much seniority in the hierarchy, they would if they gave you an order that you would have to go and plant bulbs or stake chrysanthemums or um, remove the buds of chrysanthemums or transport plants, you'd have to do it. So um, it was just a fight to have enough time and the resources to grow, to grow the bonsai. Yeah. It was, it was difficult in the beginning. And, and I mean, is the reason that you stuck it out because life had happened and you were now married and had kids and that's what motivated you or was it you know like what caused you to stick because for most people that that's a that's a they deal breaker just, yeah probably up and quit no i did probably i had a few run-ins with um some bosses and i don't know if i've kept them but i actually wrote three letters of resignation and never gave them to my bosses but I was always on the point of doing so, really. <laughs> I think I still have at least one of them. Uh, so it came really close. They pushed but you. you know, yeah, but you know, once you had those trees, you know, Pierre Book said, you know, once you start for the garden, you're committed for life. And he was right. He said, uh, he says, I'm going to, I know you're going to finish your career here. Uh, it wasn't because of the botanical gardens. It was the attachment to the trees. As I said, I had made a, an effort to get them for the botanical gardens. And I, I wanted to see that, you know, it's like children that, you know, that they were looked after. Yeah. They were, the collection was brought to its fruition. In fact, when the garden, um, Pierre Book wanted to um, attract people to visit um, we call it the tree house. It's a, a tree interpretation center at the Botanical Gardens to make people aware about trees. But it's right in the back of the garden and not many people go there. So he wanted to have a native bonsai collection on a balcony. And I refused to have it on the, a big balcony. And I got into a huge argument with him and we fought about it for months. But finally he accepted to have it down below on the ground. And, and it was built at a huge cost, but then I kept telling them, Pierre, it's very nice to have a North American bonsai collection, but where are the trees going to come from? You know, there's not that many people growing native species, mm -hmm. and if they are, most of them don't want to, you know, sell them or give them away. Right. Where are they going to come from? Well, he said, well, 
We'll see about that when the time comes. Well, the time came in 1997, and we still only had a few trees from Nick Lenz. Um, so I actually, anything I had in my collection that was North American, I gave to the garden. I just, you know, would bring them every, every month in my car and just say, here, these are, um, and they weren't all crappy. You know, some of them were st still in training, but I just wanted to see, and I really truly believed, and of all my loves at the Botanical Garden, it is the North American collection. Huh. And so I really believed in what I was doing. I, I really was passionate about it and really believed that having a public, you know, a collection open to public viewing was the most important factor in encouraging people to do bonsai in North America and that we needed those collections. And because up to 1988, none of our, our collection was on public display. They were all in, in greenhouses in the back where, that were inaccessible to the public. Wow. Wow. And in making that accessible, what was your hope? What was your hope that the public having exposure to bonsai, what was your hope that that would do? You know, <clears throat> several years after that, I went to France. Um, I no, sorry, it was a convention in Germany, in Munich. I think Walter Paul had, had it was the second, I think the second World, um, World Bonsai Friendship Federation convention in Munich. And there was a Frenchman that uh, was a demonstrator on the stage. And afterwards, he came down and he introduced himself to me and said, y I just want to tell you how I became interested in bonsai. He said, I went on vacation to Quebec. Uh, I went to visit the Montreal Botanical Gardens and I saw your collection of bonsai. He said, I had never seen bonsai up to that moment. And he said, it changed my life. He said, from that day on, all I wanted to, all I thought about was bonsai, and that's what inspired me to become a bonsai expert. And it inspired so many people to see these beautiful trees. Um, so, and I, that's why I wanted to have a bonsai collection in Montreal. You know, often I'd, I'd be working in the display areas, and. I've come down to the conclusion that there's two types of people. There, there would the, be the people that would just breeze through, remark on the ages of few trees, and within a minute or two, they were gone. It, it was just ho-hum for them. They didn't really, and sometimes you'd see a visitor that had never seen a bonsai before, and they'd walk in and see the first tree. And the look on their face and the amazement was just incredible and, and it changed their lives and that's why I think it's important to have public bonsai collections. Are you, are you more aware of why you did it now than you were then when you were in the middle of it and just fighting on a daily basis to, to make it happen, keep it alive, drive it forward? You know, life does run you down. You know, there's all the usual daily inconveniences of just 
trying to get the kids to daycare and trying to get work on time. Usually I'd arrive late because I'd have to drive some children to, to school. And then it would be a hassle to get everything watered um, and get all the display areas cleaned up. And so, so much of the work was routine. Mm -hmm. It was, and then there were always the inevitable meetings, always a meeting, always a boss calling you to, you know, into a meeting for this and a meeting for that. And that was hard, but still, you know, I mean, to the best of my ability, I would always try to keep the bonsai collection, you know, well trimmed, well wired, in top shape. Um, at the time, you know, most of the time I was alone. I didn't have enough time for all the trees. Uh, that was the hardest part. I, I, I was never paid overtime and often I would leave work every day. The usual quitting hour was four o'clock and I would stay until six or seven um, just trying to trim trees because it was the only time that we weren't bothered by bosses or yeah. anything else. It was the only quiet time. Um, so I could get my work done, but then I'd get home late and I'd have another two hours of watering my own trees at home. Some, most of the time I'd be watering in the dark. Life was tough, um, but I did it. And I don't know how I think back to it. And, and, and I don't know how I did it at the time. And I, I'm glad that you circled back to your own collection. Cause that's one of the things when I first, um, the first significant, obviously, when I came back from Japan in 2010, uh, Bill invited me to do his symposium in November, and you were uh, speaking at the symposium That's as well. Right. And I think we had met prior to that, but that was the first time that I really kind of, yes. you know, formally... I met you once or twice in Japan right. at Kimura-san's exactly. with tour groups, yes. Which, you know, it's not like I could stand and talk to you guys oh, and hang out. And, stand. and that was the first time that I that I'd met D David Easterbrook appropriately in my mind. Um, and heard you speak, listened to your critique, um, just got to get exposure. And then I saw an elm on a stone that was displayed at the national show. Yes, yeah, that and, first one. And, yes. that, and um, when I saw that piece, I was like, what is that? And I said, oh, that's, that's David Easterbrooks. Uh, he brought it down from uh, the Montreal Botanical Garden. I mean, you know, my head exploded. I was just like, this they're doing this level of bonsai in Canada? Like, this is crazy. Uh, it was amazing. Oh, I was I was you. floored by that piece. And, thank you. And somebody said, yeah, he, he curates the Montreal Botanical Garden's bonsai collection, and then he's got a whole uh, massive garden of his own trees. <laughs> and I'm just like, uh, just having come from Japan and seen Mr. Kimura's operation in a stable of six apprentices that are uh, at, at times five, you know, uh, four when it's slim. There are random times where he has fewer than that, but not many because he yeah. does have a large operation. Thinking about a uh, bonsai collection that is at the Montreal Botanical Garden and, and you maintaining that and then going home and working on your own trees, I couldn't comprehend how you could do that. And, and somebody told me he's just crazy about bonsai. Well, you know, I mean, it was tough because I did have a lot of trees at home and I would have to get up at about 4, 4.30 every morning to get the trees watered. It would take a couple of hours in the morning and I, I started work at 7. 
And often, as I said, I'd have to drive one of my children to uh, daycare, to school. And it was tough. And then, you know, after work, pick up a child or two at school and then get home and water another at least an hour and a half in the evening. And that, you know, that was without mentioning the, the pruning and the wiring and all of the other yeah. work. So it was tough. I, you know, but I must say that I, at the time, I think I did neglect my family. Um, in a way, my wife had the burden of raising the children, especially helping them with homework, um, doing all the cooking. And it was hard on her. I think I told you this morning that it almost, uh, it led to a sort of um, almost a, a divorce. Um, we had to go through a lot of um, couples therapy to, um, to understand, you know, you know, I had to agree to slow down a bit on my, with my bonsai ambitions and to, um, and to try not to let it interfere too much with my family life. So it was hard on all levels, professional level, family level, but we do it because we love it. Yeah. So, but I didn't find it. It's so nice to be retired now and not have to worry <laughs> about any of that any longer. Congratulations. Oh, geez, nice. I, I mean, uh, you did it. Yeah. You did it. Yeah. You, you did it in a very big way. And when I came in 2011, you invited me to come to Montreal, uh, which which was hugely flattering for You're me. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> I, you know, the invitation coming from you was particularly, um, I, I felt very honored that you would invite me. And uh, coming here and seeing the size of the Montreal club, I'd never yes. seen a club of that size uh, in the limited time I'd traveled uh, in North America after finishing my apprenticeship. I mean, it just felt like such a, um, a, a massive community with a lot of passion. And you had Karamatsu, your study group of very right. advanced individuals. And just the, the way that it operated and, and the methodology that, that was a part of um, the Montreal Bonsai Club. It started in 78. Yes. All of a sudden, careful what you wish for. You've got all these trees and you have a bonsai collection at the Montreal Botanical Gardens. Was the club growing and this awareness that's being created at the Botanical Gardens with the bonsai collection feeding the expansion of that club? Was it a tandem growth that I happened? I think so. I think so. I think the, um, the, the bonsai collection actually attracted... Uh, uh, people to the bonsai club also the close cooperation between our bonsai society and the montreal botanical gardens we had access to meeting rooms to um, amphitheaters for um, demonstrations um, even to um, work areas at the botanical gardens at the time so it was very advantageous for the club and the director of the botanical botanical gardens pierre bork was very encouraging mm -hmm. he motivated us he if, if we needed something, he would help us get it. Uh, so that all helped. Um, the other thing that really helped build up um, our bonsai society is because Montreal is in such a, um, an unusual situation. We have one foot in North America, the other foot in Europe. Yeah. So we were benefiting from some 
you know, bonsai experts and bonsai knowledge from North America, but also the European way of doing bonsai with bonsai professors and bonsai schools and especially bonsai classes that they would teach at different levels inspired Montreal um, to, to follow in European footsteps rather than North American footsteps. And uh, in order not to lose the majority of new members every year, we instigated these teaching levels and um, encouraged people to graduate from one level to the next to the next, hired professional teachers, horticulturalists as, as uh, bonsai professionals also, as teachers, helped the club to grow and to flourish. Yeah, it's the first, it's the first real successful model of how to make a, a bonsai club that, that does allow people to truly grow in the art form and expand and not just take part in a presentation on a monthly basis, but to have a methodology by which you actually have the ability to improve your bonsai capacity. And Portland, uh, Bonsai Society of Portland implemented the exact same strategy and Great. has had success with it. And I'm assuming that a lot of that was probably inspired by what happened in Montreal and the way that you guys handled it. And, I, and, and, and that was the thing that I found inspirational about that. But it, it makes sense, like the, the Botanical Gardens bonsai collection is feeding into exposure and people come That's here. Correct. And then you're creating this way for them to be able to make sense of this mystery of an art form. Do you think that the difficulty in your journey helped you be able to create a clearer path for people to learn? Having gone through what you went through to get where you went, do you think it made it easier for you to, to, to make it? It's, it's so much easier today to do bonsai than, than the, when I started doing bonsai. Not only you know, is the club well organized so that a new member can literally you know, start on this, um, this gradient of, of bonsai classes and they, we have stage also. They're like, you know, you, um, you do a three or four year study with an expert, either local or a European expert on a certain species of tree. Mm -hmm. um, you have the Francois Jacquard comes and gives a school of bonsai also. So there's all these different ways that you can improve um, your bonsai learning techniques here in Montreal is just amazing. There's, you know, during the busy period, there's a workshop almost every single week that's made. Sometimes on one weekend, the same day, the Bonsai Society will be hosting uh, a workshop for level one, another one for level two, another one for level three. It's that active. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's been an amazing um, transformation in the way bonsai is done in North America and and I think it did inspire other clubs they've certainly I I walk around and tell people in other in you know clubs in the northeastern part of the United States about why we became so successful most of them say well our club is too small we can't do it and there's a million excuses but um, certainly there's some some way to um, use that information in maybe a, a smaller or a more limited way to to expose their members to bonsai. Yeah. Because these, this idea of having just a monthly meeting um, on 
various scattered subjects and maybe the first half hour or hour before the meeting we'll, we'll teach the beginners the basics of bonsai. That doesn't work anymore in North America. Yeah. I mean, the, especially young people, the younger generation, they want to learn like that yep. really, really quickly. I mean, they are getting so much information off the internet now uh, out of, from your video classes and everything else that um, they want immediate satisfaction. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, bonsai societies have to evolve and adapt to the needs of, of younger members. And if you don't, a lot of bonsai clubs are disappearing now. Struggling, yeah, struggling yeah. significantly. It's, it's a radical, radical transformation that the outreach of technology has implemented into the methodology. Right? It certainly is. Yeah. It's a whole new world. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it goes, uh, it can go both ways, but I think watching how availability of information about bonsai, but also at this, in the same breath, inspiration, seeing the work that's happening, yes. whereas you had to go to Japan, you might have seen some black and white, you know, books about Japanese bonsai, but you had to go there to get it. I mean, the amount of information we're getting out of China and Taiwan and Korea and Japan and Europe and all of that visual influence and seeing these different methodologies and aesthetics that are pursued is really inspiring a rapid growth. I think we're at least uh, maybe a greater understanding of bonsai as a practice. Maybe, but if I was a young person today just starting in bonsai, I think I would be overwhelmed. Yes. Um, you know, I, I keep telling young people starting in bonsai that, you know, if you're going to um, study bonsai over the internet, go to qualified professionals, yeah. the ones that have done their, you know, um, their apprentices, apprenticeships in Japan, you know, like yourself, like Bjorn and other um, qualified professionals. Sure. Just don't look at any old video. Yeah. And, and don't spend, I think the people keep coming to me and saying, well, I saw this on the internet last night. I saw this and this person told me this. And generally I tell them you're spending way too much time looking at, you know, your iPad and you're not spending enough to time doing bonsai. Doing it. Uh, yeah. Because it is a tangible the interaction with the tree, you learn as much from that as anything somebody can teach you. I've met so many people that can quote you word for word what you said on your last video, and yet they don't know how to wire. Yep. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's a strange world out there now today. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is too much information. We're not geared for this much stimulation and information for sure. Now, when when you start to think about the success and and all of these things that have happened with the collection and the the club do you think that it's fair to say that what was his name pierre bork yes pierre bork could he could you potentially attribute some of the impact and expansion of bonsai in north america to his support as well would you say i think I think yes. Um, you know, he he after um, well retiring as director of Montreal Botanical Gardens, he actually became mayor of the city of Montreal. Um, he's a very uh, charismatic person. He um, at the gardens he would form 
a team around him of interesting, curious, intelligent people. And he'd call, he'd call us the family. You know, when my children were born, I'd get, you know, a, a bouquet of flowers and a card to the new member of our, our family. Wow. So wow. he was an inspiring man. And he, was a, he had studied horticulture. And every day, uh, either in the morning or at his lunch, during his lunch hour, he would stroll through the gardens. And if he would, if I'd be in the greenhouse when he went through, he'd stop and say, um, David, how's the collection going? How's it going today? Um, and, and ask you a question and, and really care. And, and if anything, often I'd want to meet him. There was an, a bonsai expert coming or there was a problem. And I'd say, I, I'd like a meeting with you. And he'd say, oh, I'm really, really booked heavily today, but speak to my secretary and she'll find a little five minute opening for you toward the end of the day. And you could always get through to him. Hmm. Um, not anymore, it doesn't work that way, the botanical gardens. But he was inspirational for me. I, I think if he hadn't been director, not only wouldn't I have been hired, but, um, I wouldn't have stayed on at the Botanical Gardens. He was that influential. Wow. When did he retire? Oh, Pierre Book. Oh, God. He was here last year. I'm trying to remember. He's, uh, I've been eight years and five, about 13, 14 years ago, I'd say. Yeah. And when, when did the necessity to balance family life with your bonsai pursuit, when did that start to... Uh, influence your pulling back a little bit from the same intensity that you'd been pushing for so long? Wh when did that happen? I'd say it would have been in the hmm, the mid-90s. Um, as I said, my wife, my wife was a botanist at the Botanical Gardens, but also she, uh, she has a a master's degree in library science. So she was running the library, not only the library, she was the webmaster of the botanical gardens and also in charge of all the archives. So she had five or six employees. Jeez. And um, she had a very important job and she is also a workaholic, dedicated, she was dedicated to her library. She actually built it from the ground up. And um, she, she actually earned a lot more money than I did, three times as much money. So she, she was very committed to her job. And so she, you know, she didn't want to um, give up her job and I didn't want to give up mine. So it was a rough life because we both had commitments all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, something broke. I mean, I was, on the weekends I wasn't there, I was off teaching somewhere. Uh, in the evenings, I would get home, water my trees, and then work on the trees till 11 o'clock or midnight most of the time. Wow. So they'd never see me. Wow. And uh, finally, um, yeah, it just got to the point where I guess, um, you know, she was fed up. And I think I was also, overwhelmed yeah and not really realizing it and and it took that um that breakup to convince me that no there was a more sustainable way of of uh complementing you know my family life and bonsai together of you know 
of leading a, a more sane life. And what did that what did that look like compared to what you'd been doing up to that point? What happened after that point? After that point, well, I actually had two greenhouses full of plants, and I was selling bonsai uh, to to people in Montreal, and we didn't. I didn't have any um, classroom or even a washroom, so people would tramp through our house at all hours of the day and night to use the washroom, and they would be interrupting the family life and everything else. So I decided that I would put a stop completely to the commercial aspect of bonsai, mm -hmm. that I wouldn't have any people over to the house um, unless they were students on a certain day of the week. and. Um, and scaled down my teaching and um, just tried to be a better father, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then as you, so as you make those changes and you, I mean, you've, the club is already going, the collection is already going, like you, you put in all that momentum and then are operating based on what you've been doing and then, you know, she says, hey, it's time for family and you're like, yeah, you needed that too and you start to taper off on some of those commercial and teaching engagements, you get into the early 2000s. And does anything change with the rise of European bonsai in the early 2000s? I mean, I know you're connect closely connected to, to Europe, Europe yes. via France, um, but I noticed when I was in college, bonsai Europe, Yes. The magazine is coming out. You're seeing this European work, and it's interesting. It's uh, understandable. Yes, I guess a little bit more identifiable than Japanese work because they're working on raw yamadori, which we have access to, and not a tree that's yes. been a bonsai for a hundred plus years. And and all of a sudden, I felt like Europe just hit this massive that's true. Uh, exponential growth with the Ginkgo Awards and all of that. Did that yes. influence the Montreal Botanical Collection, your bonsai approach or anything? It did. Not so much. You know, most Montrealers or Quebecers uh, didn't have the, the opportunity to travel to France to see the Ginkgo Awards. Um, I, I was uh, lucky because I was... In, invited on several occasions to go and demonstrate in France at various French cities. But I think the thing that most influenced uh, Quebec was not the exhibitions, but the, uh, the way the Europeans learned bonsai. That was actually, you know, Europeans that had traveled to Japan, done an apprenticeship, and then gone back and started schools of bonsai where you would actually, like in, in medieval uh, ages of, in, in Europe, you would, um, you would become an apprentice to a, an architect or an artist and, and become part of a stable, learning from him, much like you did with Kimura. And th that really inspired a lot of people in Montreal to, um, to really start to um, want to learn bonsai with an individual, yeah. you know, to, to tie themselves to an individual. Uh, that was important. Also, the, the European bonsai magazines, there were a lot of uh, thrilling new demonstrations that were being published in those magazines. Um, 
you know, because when I was teaching in France, they didn't have access to good material. They didn't really, um, they were behind. The British were the top bonsai experts at the time. And yeah. then all of a sudden, they seemed to be totally, you know, um, disappear. And it was the French and the Italians and the Spanish yeah. that came into their own. Um, so that inspired Montreal a lot. Um, the club is the idea of bonsai experts that were traveling and learning and teaching, and that's why we started bringing them to Montreal from Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and they inspired Montrealers a lot. And th the other factor also at the time was Kimura, mm. your teacher. Yeah. You know, um, all of a sudden, you know, he had published these three you know magazine type books which i have and and i mean they're most my most precious books <laughs> and uh and everyone was just flabbergasted yeah. by the amazing transformations he was doing you know people up to that time we're still thinking that bonsai were, you know, these very small trees and that, you know, everybody had to abide by, you know, all John Naka's rules, you know, that the first branch had to be on the right or left and the second one and the third had to be a back branch or, you know, and all of a sudden Kimura comes along and is creating amazing bonsai out of maybe just one branch or turning trees upside down right. or bending them in two or three and everybody's going wow this is absolutely insane yeah this is and i mean again the problem was a lot of the europeans and north americans took that idea and knocked it off but did it very poorly uh but still it it opened up a whole new world of possibility. All of a sudden, we wanted to go out and not collect little trees anymore. We wanted to collect big trees to make bonsai. And we wanted to be able to bend them and twist them and carve the dead wood. So that was, that was radical. Yeah. Here in Quebec. Wow. You know, toasting with everybody when we're all healthy and, and, and happy around the table, like you have to, you do have to have that centrifuge and it does take a lot. And just, I think like the, the learning a lot more and hearing it from you about, you know, the way things evolved to what they were. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I think you can trace the history of bonsai in North America back to a, uh, a few very pivotal people. Obviously, there are people that mentored you and inspired you and helped you on your journey and stuff. But where we are now, you know, I mean, you're you're one of these people that I think is... is you're making me feel like a dinosaur. <laughs> no, 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 because we're so young in this process, right? <laughs> But I mean, uh, but look at how far we've come in such a short period of time. It, it's yeah. incredible. Yeah. You came from a place where nobody was practicing bonsai in the 70s. And through sheer determination and curiosity, spread that passion to the largest club in North America, you know, the, the most, one of the most prominent collections yeah. that exists. And, uh, and commercially were able to supply people with these pieces that allowed them to engage, created this curriculum system via the club that, I mean, it's, it, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm kind of mind, mind blown uh, by the whole thing. And, and I, 
I continue to want to come back and ask you, how did you develop the ability? Nobody's teaching you how to be a curator of a bonsai collection. I mean, again, yeah. this is another groundbreaking thing, and you're, you're, you're having to do all of this. But at some point, once you get into the 2000s and you, uh, do, you are spending more time with your family and pulling back, you had to, I'm assuming, have a system to the way that you manage this massive collection at the botanical gardens plus your own trees. Was, was it systematized, and how did you do it, and how did you figure that out? You know, it, it partially, you know, living in Quebec, um, it's a very um, sort of a French or a European way of doing things. Everything is hierarchical, you know, um, in the sense that... Um, you know, you have a director, you have assistant directors, superintendents. And so when I was the curator of a bonsai collection, we would call them um, uh, horticulturist, horticulturist in charge of the bonsai collection. And that would make you um, sort of give you entire responsibility. I think there were less politics in Montreal than at the U.S. National Arboretum. Um, and Generally, it was up to you to decide how to run the collection. Um, mind you, it was hard because if I needed help, I would have to go into the foreman's office and beg almost on bended knee for help that day to carry something around or, you know, to... So every day it was like being a beggar and going in um, to ask for, for help or for a certain item or something. but. No, you just learned on the on the ta. On the ta means you learned while you were doing it how to run the collection. Mm -hmm. um, and fortunately, I guess I was driven enough and believed enough in it that I um, I just learned to do it. Yeah. And and um, hopefully, you know, being curator of a bonsai collection is it's not only learning how to grow the trees and care for the trees, but also gives you a certain credibility. So I often, uh, went, during my travels or my teaching, would try to persuade people to donate trees to the Montreal Botanical Gardens. Uh, we had, again, uh, Wu Sun, George LeBolt gave us a very large collection. One of uh, my students, Dr. Tang, who lives in Montreal, uh, persuaded him to give a very large collection of Vietnamese bonsai to Montreal. Interesting. And so, um, in encouraging donations, Nick Lenz in 1997 gave us a large part of his collection. Um, so, a lot of it is personal contacts. A lot of it is how just through your own sheer charisma, you can um, inspire confidence in other people um, to, to actually give, give you trees from their collection and say, I want them to be in Montreal because I know you're going to take care of them um, the way they should be taken care yeah. of. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was... That was something else, too, to um, that public relations, that marketing aspect that I had to sort of fortunately, I think when I was young, I was relatively introverted. But as I became older, I sort of forced myself to become more extroverted and um, reach out to people. But I think the thing that helps me most is that maybe it's my anthropology 
anthropological background, but I'm always curious about every individual. Every, I find everybody is fascinating. I really like to, when I meet someone, I like to talk to them and find out about them. My wife says, you constantly amaze me because we're in a store or something and within five minutes, you know, the, the sales girl, girl will open up and tell me her whole life. <laughs> and, I, and she says, how'd you do it? And I, I said, I don't know. I just speak to them and they confide in me. And maybe, maybe that's natural, innate, I don't know. But, um, and it's helped our collection a lot. Mm. Um, it's helped me um, convince people to donate trees or funds to our collection. And it's helped um, me, you know, the first time I invited you to Montreal, I was privileged that you accepted because, um, you know, sometimes it's only done through personal contacts. A lot of experts didn't want to travel or were hesitant and sometimes it took a little bit of pushing to get you guys to come to Montreal. Uh, yeah, I, that was an easy one for me because um, coming back from Japan and having seen Japan and the, and the community around bonsai that had formed, you, and you're down, you speak of your time in Nagoya. Yes. Um, and, and I think Daijuin is one of the most prominent nurseries that's existed in Nagoya. And you look yes. at the impact of Daijuin and the Suzuki family and the yes. stable of apprentices that have really populated Japanese bonsai throughout the country. And you've got the Kanto Plain, Omiya Bonsai Village. You've got uh, Kansai down in Osaka. Yes. You know, you move down into Shikoku and Takamatsu, the pine capital of the world. Um, Shinji Suzuki and what's happening up in Obuse and Nagano. And, and you, um, you, have, you have all of that that you need to understand to be doing bonsai in my mind. Yes. So then to come back to North America and not take the opportunity to see Montreal and the club and, and the community that's formed here and to not go to the National Collection and not see all of the Golden State Bonsai Federation collections means as a bonsai professional, you don't have the equipment that you need. You don't have the knowledge, right. you, you know, right. because yeah. that's what it means to do bonsai in North America is to, to try and educate yourself as much as you can about North American bonsai as it stands, whether it's whether it is a practice of the Japanese art form or whether there are native materials being utilized and how are they being utilized and what is being done. And I was so fascinated with that. And, and even it's, it's funny sitting here talking to you, you're, you had a fascination in native material being utilized for bonsai from the very beginning because that's yes. what you were out in fields collecting. Well, it was the only thing I could get. And I wasn't very rich. I, I couldn't afford to buy expensive trees, so you used whatever came to hand. Yeah, but the other thing that I continue hearing as a recurring theme is the culture of being French Canadian yes. largely has created the backbone that you've utilized to organize your yes. journey through bonsai yeah. and have success with it. And that cultural influence on what's been created and the success that it's had here is, is at the fundamental uh, foundation, I think, of every person pursuing bonsai, pulling on the strengths of the, the culture that they know and identify with. Yeah. It's, it's so beautiful to hear you talk about that and to understand that as being a big part of it. Because, um, man, what a, what a statement of an art form that is truly mirroring the individual that's pursuing it. To see that culture echo through your approach is, is pretty monumental, I think. Yes, I think so. I, you know, <laughs> As I say, part of the success of 
bonsai here in Quebec is the fact that um, French Canadians are have one foot in both North America and Europe and um, and we have so much access because we speak a second language mm -hmm. we speak French so we have access to um, you know not only North American English speaking experts but also you know French experts from France and Belgium and many Italians right. speak French or Spanish people or they can be translated here it's it's commonplace to you know translate an expert um, and so we don't see any cultural sort of um, hazards to, to inviting um, experts from other countries so we're very open yeah to, to all outside influences here in Quebec and I think that's typical of Quebec no limitation. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So so take me up through I mean you you had the boom of Mr. Kimura's inspiration and 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 the rise of European bonsai as inspiration. When I came in 2011, yes. you were I believe transitioning out of being the curator or soon to had I was right in that uh, that phase and when did you decide that this thing that you'd, I mean, you'd literally raised a, a child into a, a, a <laughs> big, strong adult at this point, when did you decide it was time and what did that look like? And I mean, I don't know if that's painful or well, controversial. I don't want to try to. No, I'm not no, no, no. Well, you know, um, I had actually um, been looking for years for a replacement. Don't forget that for a somebody to take over the bonsai collection in Montreal, um, they have to be French speaking. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's not that many North Americans that have studied in Japan. So um, I was looking for a young person who had, I don't know, that, that golden touch. And um, I found a young man, Eric Auger, who was not a bonsai person. He was actually, he made violins. But he, he was very, very good at bonsai. It almost, you know, within, you know, a few weeks of starting to wire, he wired very, very well. Um, he had a very sensitive eye, too, to making bonsai. And uh, I found him very promising. And so I actually took him under my wing for a couple of years. Um, but to do that, he had to quit violin making and was struggling to survive. Um, so he, he did his uh, apprenticeships at the botanical gardens, but that was only during the summer. During the winter, actually, the first, the first winter, he, he needed a job. So I called up Hitoshi Kanagawa of New England Bonsai and said, Hitoshi, can you hire him for me? Because Eric just, you know, he needs a job and I want him to work in bonsai and um, he's, he's a good worker. So Hitoshi said, David, you know how the Japanese are. If you tell me he's a good person, that he'll work hard and, um, you know, he's a good worker, I, I will take him on. And he actually lived in Hitoshi's house with him during the whole winter and worked with Hitoshi. Wow. And, and then the second year uh, after his second apprenticeship, there was no, um, you know, he, he wanted to work on bonsai and there was no um, other opportunities. Uh, he did go to um, 
to Japan and work with Kobayashi-san for about uh, for about three or four weeks. Um, but when he came back, he needed a job. So it was a question of um, I was going to stay on and and complete 30 years. I had 29 and a half years, but um, I was this an arrangement that you'd made, or was this a commitment to yourself? No. Or? To, uh, well, no, because usually you have to work 30 years to get a full pension. Gotcha. Okay. And so, but finally I said, look, I'll, I'll gracefully bow out because Eric is ready and he needs the job. So I bowed out after 29 and a half years. And um, I think he's doing a good job. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What was that like separating yourself from this thing that you had birthed from the beginning? Was it a relief? <clears throat> no, not a relief. Um, hard. It's like a divorce. It's hard. Uh, hard sometimes to go back. Most of the time it's harder to go back and see the trees um, because there's sort of a wistfulness, a sort of almost longing that, oh, geez, you know, I wanted to do this with it and, you know, went in another direction or it's not quite what I wanted it to be. Sort of a melancholy about it. And in fact, I try not to go back too often so that um, I'm not reminded of the past. It's sort of um, hard, um, but I still love seeing the trees and, um, you know, they are technically, they're very well worked on. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pleased with the work they're doing, the ones that took over my, my job at the Botanical Gardens. Yeah. So you feel like um, the efforts that, that you put it into Eric and, and his meeting that call of duty and that challenge that he's, he's done that well. Yes, yeah. He's not very extroverted. That's, that's a shortcoming. He's not very, and so on the, um, you know, the marketing side or the communication side, I think maybe that's something that can be developed more. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but on the other hand, technically he's very, very good. And so, um, you know, you can't have it all in life. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think he's, you know, and Matthew, the, uh, the young man that's taken over the Penjin collection, he's very extroverted and he's very enthusiastic. Um, and so it's, it's worked out very, very well between the two of them. Yes. That, um, when you, when you look at that with melancholy and, and, um, yeah, it is. It's, it's, I've, I've never heard anybody describe it that way. I, I often wondered how David DeGroote felt when, yeah. when the curatorship, when he, I mean, he was ready. I think he was ready. I think that was um, yeah. his choice. Well, but. you see, there's two. When I was there, I built it up from nothing. And so the collection was always in expansion. Um, and as I said, if I, you know, I mean, even if there were maybe too many trees, I'd always find a way of, of, of pruning them and presenting them. But now there's a whole new sort of approach to it. Eric and Matthew found that the collection was a bit too overwhelming. So many of the trees that were maybe, how could I put it, second rate, 
were auctioned off or sold, and um, the the display area at the the treehouse, the tree interpretation center, has been decreased. Um, the number of sarubo uh, monkey poles that they're displayed on, some many of them were removed, and not as many trees displayed. And I found that hard because you know I had sort of. Um, had conceived of the display area and sort of created created it in its entirety as an ensemble of all things together and so sometimes when you go back and things are not as they should be in your mind it's hard to take yeah but again it's life i mean you know that's I can't control budgets and I can't control what other people are prepared to do. So, um, you know, I don't bitch or complain about it. As I say, there's a certain nostalgic, melancholic feeling about going back and seeing, seeing it. But the trees are well cared for, so I can't complain. It's almost like uh, it's almost like making a tree, and then somebody else, you know, it changes <laughs> hands, or somebody purchases it, and they choose to change the direction you'd gone, and you know, that's like uh, that's a really interesting thing to have to wrestle with just yeah. as a bones. But that's like the micro scale of which uh, of what you're experiencing, and yeah. man, uh, True. yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that with me. That that's. Uh, not something that anybody I've ever heard anybody verbalize before. Yeah, it is hard. It is hard to see them um, again. But then again, you know, there's a certain pride too because many of the trees that I gave from my own collection, you know, I look at them and go, wow, that's really aged and become more mature and more beautiful. And it's like, you know, as if your children have finally come into their own and, yeah. you know, become these these adults that you're really proud of. Yeah. And so there is a certain pride too in looking at, you know, some of the trees that you gave or you worked on from nothing or, you know, well, during my career at the botanical gardens, I would often order seeds or buy young nursery material because, you know, we weren't allowed to um, import trees from Japan or just once or twice. So, you know, and especially no fruiting trees. And I always wanted, say, um, you know, a Chinese quince or uh, I wanted, you know, uh, Japanese quince or fruiting trees. So now some of them that I gave to the garden or grew at the garden are starting to look really good. Yeah. And you're like really pleased when you see them. Yeah. 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 And Having like when you accumulate this this journey, I mean, this is this is like you've basically you've walked us through. There's so many moments in this conversation where I would have loved to like I, I I would love to hear what your experience in Japan was like. I would I would love to have known more about sort of the the creation and the the discussions that happen with the creation of the collection and and those will have to be stories for another time. But okay. you've pretty much taken us on this walk through this. Where, where do you see bonsai going? Having seen the change of the trends, the growth and all this, where, where is bonsai going? Well, again, I think it's the younger generation that's driving it. They don't necessarily want to be members of clubs anymore. In fact, clubs as, are rapidly disappearing from, on the map. Um, most of them, it's individual efforts, but they're getting their information from um, 
from videos from uh, the internet. Um, they do need bonsai clubs to have exchanges with other bonsai people, get material sometimes, but um, they only go to a meeting if it serves their interest, if yeah. it's something that they find is appropriate to what they're doing. Okay, that's the difference there. Uh, so I think there's going to be more individual effort. Um, most of the young people, as I say, are much more um, driven and want fast results. So everybody that gets in touch with me with me now want old specimens. They don't want to. Me, I had to grow my trees for 30 or 40 years to have nice trees. Um, the, the, the question I have most of the time now is where do I get 30 and 40 year old trees? I mm -hmm. want them now. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I don't know what the solution is. Um, people don't want to seem to, um, to want to wait that long. So either there's going to have to be more bonsai uh, propagators and growers, um, that will pop up in North America and uh, in order to supply the market. Or there's going to have to be a way found to import trees from, from either Korea, if Japan is unacceptable, or some other, or Taiwan, or some other Asian country, mm -hmm. um, in order to, um, to have material to create bonsai. Um, the collecting door is closing in, in North America also. Um, maybe in the Western US, it's still available, but here in the East, it's getting more and more difficult to um, have permission to collect wild trees. So I don't know what the solution is. On one hand, people want old trees. On the other hand, they're getting harder and harder to get. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a lot of old bonsai people like me that are retiring will be able to sort of maybe fill in some of the demand. We'll, once we're starting to get older, we're, you know, Nick Lenz, myself, other people are going to have to sell off their trees. And um, it'll give an opportunity to young yeah. people to build up their collections. Perpetuate the history too. What, what would you hope for the future of the Montreal bonsai collection, the botanical garden collection? What we, what, I mean, obviously it's out of your control now, but yeah, in yeah. an ideal world, you obviously had a plan for it that far. Oh, yeah. And you probably yeah. had a continual aspiration of what it would become. Yes. You care to share that? Well, you know, unfortunately, Montreal is, is more, there's sort of, they're navel gazers. They look inwards, Quebecers. And instead of having somebody in going out and promoting our collection, um, they sort of mostly try, can, tend to c concentrate on the Quebec market. And so we don't get as many bonsai groups visiting our collection as we used to, because I used to go and visit clubs and say, you have to come, organize a bus trip, we'll treat you well here in Montreal, come and see it. Um, that's not being done anymore. Um, our animation department in Montreal is very large, but they don't promote bonsai. And unfortunately, we have four different collections, but they're spread out all around the garden. We don't even have a single pamphlet, a single map indicating where all four collections can be seen in summer and at what time of year. I 
tried to move the, the administration of the garden to put out more publicity on our bonsai collection, have pamphlets directing people to each area, promote travel groups to come to Montreal and see the collection. Because the trouble is, um, is having a, a collection of the botanical gardens, unless people come to see it, the collection has less money. Mm -hmm. um, it tends to be forgotten. If, if bonsai, if we stop getting visitors or people coming um, intentionally to visit the collection, all of a sudden, well, we don't have any money anymore for buying bonsai pots, or we won't be able to give you the extra help you need because, well, you know, right now we're um, doing mosaics or something and, you know, that's attracting more visitors. So it's very, very important for the Montreal Botanical Gardens to, um, to promote their collection, which they are not doing enough right now. Yeah. And um, that's what I hope in the future, that they could get their act together and, and promote it because then the, the more visitors you have to the boats and you know, they have often done, done um, what is it, uh, sondages, like um, oh, polls of visitors, asking them what, when they visited the botanical gardens, what impressed them the most. Inevitably, it's always the bonsai collection. Yeah. They're, they, they're a tourist draw. The visitors enjoy seeing it. And yet they treat the bonsai collection like, any other collection, um, they don't give you the ne necessary personnel and the necessary funds to keep it running as it should. And that's what's discouraging the present curators. You need, you need to attract visitors, you need to motivate people to come and see it and to build up the collection even more. That's what I hope for the future. I feel like that's a consistency. Um, you know, the bonsai is when when that collection is alive and yeah. thriving and the resources are allocated to it it will be the biggest draw it will. of any botanical garden and yes. somewhere in the all of the minutia of it there's always a big aspiration and you build this thing and then you just watch it shrink and die that's exactly what and, and it does it's never made sense to me and, and obviously as bonsai people we feel passionate about it but the survey and polling of people that are attending I, I would say that that is a universal response yes that 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 people are attracted to this art form they identify with it it allows them to tap into things they either haven't experienced or have experienced and it reminds them of yes and and the power of bonsai is stronger than I think in the botanical garden setting, the ultimate powers that be recognize over the course of time. Now, if, if Pierre was still at the head of the botanical gardens, then it probably wouldn't be an issue because he got it. Yeah. He clearly yeah, got it. Exactly. But yeah, that's a, that's a real challenge. But here's the thing about Canadian bonsai that I'm recognizing is it's not going anywhere. Canadian bonsai isn't going, going anywhere. And I think that the botanical garden bonsai collection is still the centrifuge of the health of the bonsai club. It certainly is. And your bonsai club still has this system that's been created to not just allow people to have exposure to it, but also give them an actionable way that they can make uh, sense out of this mystery that is this sort of magic of bonsai. You know, like, you put a tree in this tiny container, I hope to goodness it lives, how do I do that? 
we're gonna help and we're gonna show you, yeah. right? And, and not only that, but to be able to actualize your thoughts and create these techniques. not only helping, a bonsai society has to motivate, has to guide them and inspire people to, to do bonsai. Um, you know, too many people see bonsai as interesting little, you know, below little, you know, decorations to put in their living room. And bonsai societies have to really increase public awareness yeah. of what it's all about. I'd like to see, you know, like my wife loves watching HGTV, Home and Garden TV, and it's from morning to night where you can see, you know, people renovating houses. God, wouldn't that be great to have a television program or a series on bonsai showing people how to transform their lives through bonsai that it's not just a decoration but it's 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 part of our lives and it's it's a garden art it's not a something a decoration in the house yeah. um, we need to get out more information about bonsai here in North America only makes sense only makes sense I mean I guess I feel like uh, you know I wish we could clone David Easterbrook <laughs> start it all over again because <laughs> You know, you have these people. I mean, John Naka was a person. He had the right yeah. mixture of all the elements. You he know, like a... you you had the right mixture of all the elements. And the mixture is going to be different for John Naka or David Easterbrook or, um, you know, any other personality that has had an impact on a massive level. But um, it's a shame. So I feel very lucky to be coming at a point where I get where you're willing to share all this information with me because I, I today learned a lot. A lot of light bulbs went off for me, gleaning from the wisdom that you've gained over the course of your career. Uh, it, it already uh, sort of inspiring me to maybe look at things a little bit differently than I may have been looking at them prior to our talk. Um, but I also think, you know, getting to be here at the point where the glow uh, in Canadian bonsai is alive. It, it's, you know, the fire's been ignited and although the flames might not be as high as they were with the, the stance in the botanical garden, it doesn't mean that the fire is anywhere near going out. That's and it just true. takes another, another fresh piece of wood or another, <laughs> you know, another uh, injection Let's of hope. oxygen. And all yes. of a sudden, I think Canada is really uh, recognizing there's an identity here that is 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 still there to be further expressed and um it's pretty exciting to to be here this trip uh i've been looking forward to so thank you i do agree with you i think um in spite of the american impression of canadian people as being very bland and blah that um we have a very educated society and that are very interested in the cultural arts mm -hmm. and that's why i think bonsai has a, uh, an important role to play among Canadians. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, thank you for the time today, David. You're welcome, Very Ryan. much appreciate it. Was it was great. Yeah. Thank you for the interview. Absolutely. My pleasure. Good. Let's have lunch. Let's have lunch. <laughs> there it is.